It's Wednesday, August 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Joe Biden has picked Senator Kamala Harris to be his running mate. She is the first black woman to be named to a major party U.S. presidential ticket and potentially the first woman vice president if they win in November. Harris was seen as a safe choice as she has a national profile and experience with elected office but it will remain to be seen if her experience as a prosecutor would be a benefit or a liability with some voters. Daniel Lippman, White House reporter at Politico, joins us for more on the announcement. Next, as companies begin to resume operations while the pandemic continues to endure, many are hiring new executives as chief medical officers in industries where they normally would not be. Tyson Foods and Royal Caribbean Cruises recently made the appointments because they need expert medical advice on how to keep employees and consumers safe. Patrick Thomas, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, as the pandemic stretches on, many people are looking for places to go on vacation, and some are still risking going to traditional summer getaways despite them being coronavirus hotspots. Places like Florida, Nevada, and California are still the most searched travel destinations. Dion Zhang, data reporter at USA Today, joins us for how some Americans are visiting these virus hotspots anyway. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Joe Biden and the Democratic Party have been overtaken by the radical left. So given their promises of higher taxes, open borders, socialized medicine and abortion on demand, it's it's no surprise that he chose Senator Harris to be his running mate. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman, White House reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Well, Joe Biden finally made his pick for vice president. It's Senator Kamala Harris from California. She is the first black woman to be named to a major party U.S. ticket and potentially the first woman vice president if Joe Biden defeats President Trump in the election in November. Daniel, tell us a little bit more about Senator Kamala Harris and what she brings to the ticket. Well, she's been a uh, she was a prosecutor for 26 years, uh, mostly in uh, her city of San Francisco. Uh, she is the daughter of and a Jamaican immigrant, uh, and also she would be the first Indian American ever elected to a vice presidential office. And you know, she was the Attorney General of uh, California, uh, so she has that kind of hard, tough on crime approach. But she's definitely you know moderated over the years. And of course, she ran for president uh, last year uh, and was not successful pulling out before there was even the Iowa caucuses. A lot of people can remember to when she was running for president and there was this series of debates and she actually took quite the swipe at Joe Biden for supporting busing back in the day. And, you know, she said, I was one of those girls that was affected by that. It became this flashpoint at that debate that really got her a little bit more name recognition. I know she made a lot of money through fundraising, but you're right. She didn't really last throughout the rest of the process. But that's also something that Joe Biden kind of had to get over at the time. People were saying, whoa, nobody expected that from her. People were definitely surprised that she went so tough uh, against him. Uh, of course, she wanted to get a media moment, and which she did, uh, but it didn't, uh, it, you know, so it got her that at the time, but then it kind of backfired uh, when people realized that uh, Biden and Harris's position on busing was similar, yeah. and so she wasn't uh, going to draw too much of a distinction. Um, and so, uh, but she did not prove to be a, a great campaigner. Her campaign shifted messages all the time. There was chaos uh, in the staff. 
But that's unclear about how much that will be important now, because remember, there isn't really any campaigning. It's kind of just Zoom and video conferences and phone calls and TV interviews. And so, uh, and you know, they'll have a speech uh, or two uh, in terms of, uh, you know, major landmark speeches like when she accepts the VP right. slot at the Democratic convention. Right. And Joe Biden is the candidate for president. So he's really setting the lead on that. So she'll just have to rise to that moment. Now, Joe Biden does have a lot of past experience with Kamala. Uh, he even mentioned that in the statement that he released that he first met Kamala through his son, Bo. They were both attorneys general at the time. And, you know, he obviously respects his son in his opinion. So that's another kind of thing that they have in common, at least the familiarity there. That is um, going to be important for getting Biden comfortable uh, as, you know, with Harris as his number two, if he wins. Uh, and just during this, you know, 83, 84 days left of this campaign. Uh, and so he was personally closer to Susan Rice, uh, who was kind of the runner up uh, in the former national security advisor and ambassador. Um, but uh, he, you know, everyone had thought that Kamala Harris was going to be the pick. And uh, so from wire to wire, she was the favorite and it did not disappoint. I want to talk about age a little bit. Kamala Harris is 55. She's more than 20 years younger than Joe Biden. So she brings this uh, a little more youth to the ticket, I guess you could say. How does that fare? Being a vice president, you know, if things go well, it kind of sets you up to be the next big leader, the next presidential candidate in the future, should things be going well. So that's another thing uh, that she can possibly add to the ticket. Yeah. And so. If, heaven forbid, something happens to Joe Biden, if he's in office, she uh, would assume uh, his job then. And also, she would be a favorite or the favorite to uh, get the Democratic nomination in 2024, since Biden has indicated he won't run for a second term. And so we could be seeing 12 years of uh, Kamala Harris uh, as either VP or president, uh, if all goes well for Democrats. Now, some potential downsides. She's not necessarily the favorite of the far left of the Democratic Party. What will supporters of Bernie Sanders and uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren make of her? Uh, you know, that's a, a concern there. And then also we mentioned her experience as a prosecutor and, a, and the attorney general of California. You know, a lot of people aren't necessarily happy with the way she performed there as well. So those are also some concerns that will follow Senator Kamala Harris on this journey to possible vice presidency. It definitely uh, will. She's not seen as uh, being a leftist. She's definitely uh, a liberal progressive. Uh, but uh, I think that kind of helps her with moderate suburban voters. It's going to be hard for uh, the Trump campaign to define her as uh, being you know, to, to, like socialist when she clearly is not. And so the, the tagline that they were giving her this afternoon, phony Kamala, uh, doesn't seem to be sticking to doesn't have the sting as a, a crooked Hillary, uh, which worked very well last time. One of the things that have always kind of come up throughout this is the enthusiasm for candidates. Obviously, the president, the enthusiasm for his supporters is boundless, really. Uh, Joe Biden seemed to have a problem with some enthusiasm. But when Kamala first announced that she was running for president in Oakland, there was like over 20,000 people there. Can she bring that enthusiasm back to this ticket? I think, you know, she's going to do her best, but this is not, 
a going to be an enthusiasm election. It's going to be a referendum on, on Trump and his performance, especially with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and so that's something that uh, Democrats kind of have to get over. And they're not in the field uh, getting, uh, you know, going door to door. And so it's going to be a lot of phone calls, a lot of uh, Zoom type meetings. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, no one is too excited about uh you know, voting for Biden, but uh, on his own. But there's a lot of Democrats who are very excited about getting rid of Trump. And so that's right. that's where they're enthusiastic about. Well, uh, this next wrinkle in this uh, presidential race just happened. So we'll be watching to see what uh, is next. Uh, the exception, uh, Harris's speech accepting the nomination at the Democratic Convention will be this next week. And then after that, on October 7th in Salt Lake City, Utah, the first vice presidential debate, if it happens against Mike Pence, you know, we don't know how that's going to roll out, but there's going to, it's going to all start heating up pretty quickly now as we get closer to the election. Daniel Lippman, White House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So these are places where they felt like they needed a chief medical officer to bring medical advice, how can we bring back our workers safely on the factory floor? How can we keep our cruise ship employees safe? Tyson has also said that CMO is going to oversee some of their testing protocols. They plan to test workers at all their facilities. Joining us now is Patrick Thomas, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Thank you for having me. As companies return back to sort of normal operations, I guess, I know a lot of big companies are still doing work from home, but they're transitioning over. Other places like meatpacking plants that have continued to work throughout the pandemic, everything's kind of changing. The need to keep your workers safe and healthy is so important right now that a lot of companies are elevating a new type of executive even more, the chief medical officer. They're creating this position in places where they normally wouldn't be. So, Patrick, tell us a little bit about the chief medical officer and how they're playing a larger role in a lot of companies right now. For context, a chief medical officer in past years is very common with hospitals, healthcare companies, pharmaceutical companies. It's not so much a term that you would find at a food processor or other non-healthcare companies. It just wasn't that type of career. But lately, we've started to see companies like Tyson, Royal Caribbean, these cruise lines, food processors, like you said, that have essential workers back in the workplace in more confined quarters. They have to be on the factory floor. If you remember back to March, some of the early outbreaks were in food processing plants in rural areas. There were some outbreaks in early March on the cruise ships. So these are places where they felt like they needed a chief medical officer to bring medical advice. How can we bring back our workers safely on the factory floor? How can we keep our cruise ship employees safe? Tyson has also said that CMO is going to oversee some of their testing protocols. They plan to test workers at all their facilities. In the case of Royal Caribbean, they want their CMO to work with one of their rival cruise lines on a panel to develop policies of what's it going to look like to have consumers back on their ships and keep the cruise workers safe. So there's a variety of different reasons why these kind of companies want to bring in a CMO. And it's so important, and you just nailed it, why? Let's, you know, taking the cruise lines as an example, they took a big hit with consumer confidence in this last round. They've always had random problems with norovirus, people getting sick. But when the pandemic started, 
We were hearing stories about people being trapped on cruise ships, getting sick, and then workers were stranded on cruise ships for months on end, and they really need mm -hmm. to build that reputation back. So the role of the CMO in this, I mean, it's going to be hugely important for them. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, they're going to have their CMO on a panel with one of their rivals, Norwegian Cruise Line, and companies want to bring in a chief medical officer, not only to bring in a medical expert, but it does give the public perception that they are taking a step. You know, I'm not suggesting that it's just a PR stunt, but also right. it does in some times of crisis, like as we say in the story, in 2017, the NFL added a chief medical officer. We've seen sports teams add chief medical officers before for this reason. Whenever health concerns come up, a chief medical officer is kind of their voice to the expert they kind of give to the public to say, here's what we're doing on health policy. In a way, Royal Caribbean's kind of taking the same step in terms of having that figure to show consumers we are doing something about it. And it's not just for this, for coronavirus specifically. Uh, you know, some of the CMOs, traditional roles are taking on new dimensions, mental health issues. I think you profiled Salesforce and their CMO there, how mm -hmm. they have to help people's mental health situation when they're working from home and all that. So even the traditional role of it and the traditional things that they would, tasks they would be doing are kind of changing as well. That was one of the more interesting things I thought about this was that a company like Salesforce and maybe some more like Silicon Valley type companies that make a variety of tech products. Salesforce makes a bunch of different types of software products and they use the chief medical officer to develop certain kind of products. Their CMO is a medical expert who can bring expertise on dealing with regulations, the variety of legal hoops to jump through when you're making something that organizes patient data. You need to have someone developing that that knows what's legal and what doctors want, what they want to see, what's helpful to them, kind of their advisor on certain projects, right? And in this case, now that we're in a pandemic, their CMO is kind of, she described it as doing double time, right? She's got two roles now. It's not only the traditional role, but now you're also counseling your company in terms of who are the experts I can bring in? How can we bring people back to the workplace safely? Are there products that we've been developing that we can use to help our own employees who are working from home? That sort of thing. Yeah, it's going to be totally interesting to see as things continue to develop and we work through the health crisis right now. You know, if there's an outbreak in a meat, another meat processing plant at Tyson, let's say, for example, we're going to be hearing from the CMO on things that they did and didn't do and how they're readjusting to it. So these are the people that you're going to be hearing from as well as we continue to go through. this. So just a, you know, a more important role more than ever right now. Patrick Thomas, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Avoid long flights because the longer the flight, the more potential exposure. What makes someone more likely to inhale the virus is really a combination of factors. Now, one of those factors is the amount of time you spend in close contact with someone who has the virus. Joining us now is Dion Zhang, data reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Dion. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about travel in the United States right now. Obviously, the pandemic is hitting us. Everybody's fatigued by it. We're, you know, tired of being locked down and having to cancel vacations, cancel all of these things. But there are a lot of Americans that have taken some trips. And there's some data that we're looking at from Trivago, which is kind of interesting, showing that, yes, there are people going to places that are not big coronavirus hotspots. But there's also people going to those exact places, places like Florida, California, Nevada, 
a lot of people go in there. It's kind of interesting. So, Dion, tell us a little bit about what the data is saying. So, our analysis of this hotel search data shows Americans' intention to travel have not returned back to normal compared to last year's data. So, for instance, the July data was off 73% from the same time in 2019, but still, Florida remained the most searched domestic destination in July, followed by California and Nevada. And as you mentioned, all three of them were major COVID-19 hotspots. Florida is such an interesting thing because early on in the pandemic, we saw a lot of spring breakers going there, you know, for the beach. Obviously, it's a great party town. Then they had a, a spike. Then they went back down. Then the spikes came back. But people throughout the entire time have been wanting to go there. Tell us a little bit about these daredevils. You called them daredevils in the article about people willing to still go to these places. Daredevil is really the term used by a group of research in the university at Central Florida. Where they're saying is really asking people questions about if you want to travel near home or you want to travel to a place where the coronavirus cases are rising. And those daredevils are really people really don't care so much about the coronavirus situation and they are willing to travel away from home. And from the data, we can tell as well, Florida is really an interesting example. The hotel search data was really 95% below 2019 levels in the beginning of April. But then it bounced back to just 18% below normal in mid-June. And then as the coronavirus situation worsened starting July, the travel interest was down again. Nevada is another state where a lot of people were going, and obviously Nevada has Las Vegas. It's a huge draw. It's one of my favorite places to go and kind of unwind, do some gambling. It's a lot of fun there, obviously. What is the data showing about their interest in Nevada going? Because they also had their ups and downs and their recent spikes of numbers as well. Really, Nevada shows a similar trend as Florida. The hotel search data shows that the search level bounced back to just 26% below 2019 levels in mid-June after dropping to 94% below 2019's level in the beginning of April. And then really why Florida, California, and Nevada are so popular to travelers, according to one of the experts I talked to, is really they're the very traditional summer places for domestic travelers. Definitely these traditional summer getaways, especially when the pandemic was happening early on in the year, a lot of people only thought it was going to last so long. By summertime, we might have a lull was kind of the general thought. So people were ready to plan those things and ready to get out. And it's kind of you reach to that point. Am I going to cancel it or am I still going to go? So, <laughs> you know, I guess the data is showing that a lot of people are still very interested in getting out there. And some of the other experts that you spoke to, they laid out a bunch of different methods of travel, air travel, trains, buses, all that. What was kind of the breakdown there? Like, what do they say? Where are you the most at risk and where are you least at risk? Because I know a lot of people are going on camping trips and road trips as well. So how did they figure it all into that? So the survey data really tells that. The hotel search data didn't really mention anything about the travel method. Based on the survey data, people are more intent to travel by car rather than flight. Dion Zhang, data reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>